Greetings, Minecrafters, and welcome to the third episode, which is a discussion on embracing fear and moving forward. Today we'll discuss the relationship between anxiety and fear and how they differ, and then sort of discuss a very well-mapped-out plan to transform these feelings of fear into something that's manageable. So we'll begin with what Carol Gillian has to say about fear and anxiety, which is that fear and anxiety are closely interconnected. Anxiety is very common, if not universal experience. Many things make us anxious, but we wouldn't necessarily say we're afraid of all of them. You may feel anxious before a job interview, though not be afraid of going to the interview. We can think of the difference between fear and anxiety as a matter of degree, or as a way to distinguish between a threat and a challenge. Taking an exam, for example, may be challenging, though not necessarily threatening. No matter how we cut it up, however, this takes us right back to the, to the limbic system, which is the emotional headquarters for the brain and sort of fear and anxiety headquarters. As the worry circuit is also a feedback loop, it can be like the chicken and the egg thing. It can be difficult to determine which came first. Did my anxiety lead me into this fearful place or did my fear lead me to this anxious place? Carol Gillian goes on to say that anxiety may be anticipatory worrying, but it can also be generalized unease. Most people experience anxiety, which can be low-level, ongoing, episodic, or sometimes crippling, in which case, uh, obviously, medical psychological help may be needed. With ordinary anxiety, we usually look for the cause of the anxiousness and try to correct it. But again, it's not so simple. It can become a game of whack-a-mole, where you subjugate one cause of anxiety and up pops the next thing. It can feel endless. A common strategy is to treat the symptom, the anxiety itself, by self-medicating with drugs, alcohol, sex, or shopping. But these habitual responses to anxiety, they can become crippling addictions in and of themselves. And do they work? Well, if they did, we wouldn't have to keep drinking or shopping so frantically. In one of my books, A Full Moon Rising in the Tao of Menopause, I refer to this or the self-medication thing that Carol Gillian's talking about as soul hole filling. You know, it's like we're trying to just fill ourselves up, fill ourselves up, fill ourselves up, you know, to replace something that's missing, you know, whatever this void is. And when I chat with my students about dependency and addiction, we, you know, kind of help have them picture trying to water a beautiful flower bed or a garden with a watering can that has a small hole in the bottom. So as we're trying to feed and nurture these flowers, the water is actually running out of the, running out of the bottom. And so this effort 
you know, just kind of keeps on going. We're trying to refill, refill, refill. And in regards to the limbic system, it's important to realize how powerful and reinforcing this is. In previous episodes, we've talked about how these anxious and fearful thoughts can become obsessive and compulsive and often referred to as the monkey mind. And it's important, again, to realize that, you know, the obsessive compulsive thinking, anxiety, fear, whatever, all resides on a spectrum which with someone who's a little nervous sometimes, some days on one end, and on the other end, someone who has difficulty getting out of bed or getting out the door to walk across campus to class or a seasoned grown-up maybe uh, getting to work where it's actually debilitating, in which case obviously there's a need for professional help, um, some therapy and or medication. And also, just again, the disclaimer, the strategies we will be discussing will work for most people when someone's at that you know, that small kind of wedge on the other end of the spectrum, extreme end, they may temporarily um, be unable to access the strategies we're saying. And and in no way are these strategies meant to take the place of professional treatment. Also, in previous episodes, we discussed why, you know, the world in general would benefit if we all deleted the word disorder from the English language and any other translation of this as it is a shame word and shame is a toxic emotion that leaves us feeling less than and defective so who needs it and in my opinion it's not the anxiety depression bipolar ADHD addiction autism whatever that actually brings us down but the underlying shame It's these feelings of being less than and defective that actually bring us down and in some cases actually kill us. And not our various differences in in wiring. I mean, think about it. With support, most of us do just fine. The worry circuit and, and threat response, fight, flight, or freeze are meant to keep us alive and have been with us since the beginning of time when we were you know, being chased by saber-toothed tigers. And all of a sudden the amygdala flips the, the switch on the threat circuit saying, danger, 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 Will Robinson. Let's go dive under a woolly mammoth or climb a tree or something. I mean, that helped with the saber-toothed tiger actually, but you get the point. And now in 2020, it's we often have a very similar jack, really jacked up response to oh no, someone didn't answer my text and I can tell that they read it. Does this mean that they don't like me anymore? They don't want to date me anymore? Or we have this response to, I wasn't invited to you know, um, a, a corporate gathering with a select few. Does this mean I'm on the outs and I'm about ready to be laid off? Bah, 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 bah. This primal response is still in existence in 2020. It's very important to understand that this is a brain thing. Again, it's meant to keep us alive and now also can wreak havoc in our lives. So in addition to these 
emotions being powerful, okay, because that survival thing to keep the species going is certainly very, very powerful. It's also important to um, sort of acknowledge that the worry circuit is also self-reinforcing, which is probably one of the biggest challenges for people trying to conquer the obsessive compulsive thought process. As this pattern of thinking rewards itself. Remember, I'm saying tendencies because there's a whole spectrum. We have somebody who's, you know, kind of crippled on one end, and we've got someone who's got, who maybe is a little neat on the mild side, and then there's a whole middle. So here are some examples, and then we'll bring this back to our anxious and fearful thinking conversation. But I think sharing some examples will sort of put a visual onto what we're trying to say. So years ago, I think I had this one class, this, oh, nine, ten years ago, I don't even know, and they were just lovely. They got along very, very well, and it was in uh, some psychology class. We were talking about anxiety and then, you know, called OCD, and I had, I had two or three of them in there uh, share very openly, which most of my classes, honestly, are very chatty, which I love. And one of them started off with, they all preface this way, oh, okay, so I don't have OCD, but I just want to share with you, blah, blah, blah. So one young lady uh, worked at a pizza place downtown and as a, as a server. And her shift started at five, and she would go at four because the tables were all arranged in diagonals across the restaurant. And, of course, after the lunch shift, these would get all you know, mixed up and, and out of whack. And so she had to go in at four to make sure all the tables were exactly as they should be, because even if they were a couple inches off, she said, it didn't have to be, you know, a total mess, just a couple inches, not feeling symmetrical to her. And she'd have to go in to make sure these were just right before the dinner shift started, as obviously you can't, you know, go around moving tables while people are sitting in them. Another example is um, a young man I had in one of my classes who was a first year and was very fortunate to have a really good dorm. He, all the guys got along really well on his floor. They leave their doors open. They borrowed things back and forth and nobody worried about it. Just a really good situation. Well, this young man had a DVD collection. It was really his thing. And he had those kind of towers with the slats where you put all the DVDs in there. And he had several of these. So one day he was headed to class and he said one of his friends came up the hallway and said, hey, thanks for letting me borrow that movie the other night. I went ahead and put it back for you. This young man then explained to the class that he literally froze in the hallway and not because he cared that, the, that the, his friend borrowed the DVD or that he thought anything was wrong. And class was starting in about three minutes. And he said he, he remembers a feeling of not being able to stop himself. He had to go back in his dorm room and check the towers of D DVDs. As it turned out, he had them arranged alphabetically and by genre. Had to dump all, I think he had four or five of these towers, had to dump them all out and rearrange just to make triple sure that they were all okay before returning to class. And then the last one had to do with a young lady who was a self-proclaimed fashionista. And so she described her closet to us. It was all arranged by the seasons, 
you know, with the earth tones in the fall area, the reds in kind of the winter area, and then there were the whole, you know, pastels in the spring summer area, shoes match the purses, blah, 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 blah. You get the idea. Well, one day when she went to class, her boyfriend thought it would be funny to mix up her closet and switched it all around. And I'm sure you can kind of guess where that went. She then explained to the class that, you know, they were, they were, everybody's kind of chuckling with her because she, I don't think realized until that moment, you know, how, how strong, you know, this sort of um, pattern of thinking and doing really was. So even though they were chuckling with her and at the same time, there was a little kind of undertone of seriousness, seriousness to it because she missed, she ended up missing an entire day of classes and she had a work study job. And this is a top tier student, straight A's, didn't miss a beat. And she, she talked about it while kind of chuckling about it. She, she also sort of acknowledged the fact in that moment that she could not stop herself from putting her closet back together. I will use the very common example of going back to check if a curling iron is on or if you know, we lock the door, which certainly applies across the board, students, seasoned grown up, grown-ups, whomever. So let's just use an example where the student trying to go to trying to go to class. They head out the door, they're all ready, backpack, all set, walking across campus, they're about three minutes from campus, when all of a sudden they realize that, ooh, I may not have locked the door to my dorm. I have my brand new stereo in there, or worse, let's say they borrowed somebody's brand new something. So all of a sudden, the the thoughts start, you know, rolling through. What if, what if, what if? You know, I borrowed this, this new stereo, whatever, and what if my roommate's not there and somebody gets in, and what if they steal it? And then how will I explain this to my friend? So the student's minutes from class, and they're about to sort of swap out one stress for another. So the the stress that they're about to swap out is if they go back, then they will then be late. So all those thoughts start as well. It's embarrassing to walk into class late. I have to say, excuse me, pardon me, it's a big class. What if the professor, you know, gets mad at me, takes off points for participation, doesn't have the class count for attendance? What if I'm just a straight-A student who has a really good relationship with the professor? What if they think less of me? And whatever, right? So then there's this the the pull to go back to the dorm to make sure that the dorm door is locked because there's the stress of having something that was borrowed that was brand new be stolen, then the stress of telling the friend, etc. And I'm sure you know where this goes, right? These thoughts, these unwanted intrusive thoughts, with this you know pull to go back and check the door to see if it's locked becomes so intense and overwhelming that the student cannot stop themselves from going back to check the door. And the very second they touch the door to see if it's locked, which again, it is 99.9% of the time, there's an immediate kind of fix. It's reinforced. It's rewarded. The brain says, yay, I got it. I did it. We were trying to alleviate anxiety by going back to see if the dorm door was locked. And it was, I was successful in that moment. It's kind of like giving a dog a biscuit or actually 
worse. It's like giving a dog a, a prime rib. This is, this is a big, big reward for the brain, which means that the next time, the very next time that there's an, that there's an intrusive thought to go check if a curling iron was left on or check a door, that this pull is going to be even stronger and then so on and so on and so on. This is why many people re refer to OCD, and again, I've changed that to OCDT, obsessive compulsive thinking, for our purposes of discussion. As again, we talked about the whole spectrum of people doing um, thinking and behaving in this way, that um, mental prison, because they are aware that these thoughts are, are irrational. They're aware that there's a 99.9% .9 chance that the door is locked or the curling iron is unplugged or whatever. And, and yet they still get so wrapped up in this feedback loop that it feels endless. And not only do they, does this feel endless and, and, and they feel locked in mental prison, but then the shame kicks into gear because then the toxic internal dialogue starts up with, what's the matter with me? I'm smart. I know that this isn't quote unquote real as far as the, the need to go back and check the door. I know there's a 99.9% .9 chance that it's locked. Why can't I stop this? The why can't I stop this circular feedback loop is shame because this implies that something is wrong with us, that we're weak, that we don't have willpower that, you know, maybe we're not as intelligent as we think we are, because why can't we stop this? These messages are messages we're sending ourselves about the ways we may be defective. So bringing this back to the worry circuit of the limbic system, as this is sort of where the majority of this is happening, uh, we'll talk about something called the caudate, which is shaped like a C, and involved in muscle tone, initiating movement, and also disregarding irrelevant information. So this may be malfunctioning in somebody with the obsessive-compulsive thought pattern. Just think about how, how much sense that makes. It's responsible for disregarding irrelevant information. And then there's something called the cingulate, which wraps around the limbic system like a band. The dorsal part of the cingulate sort of processes thoughts. The ventral part of it uh, processes emotions. And the back, a posterior cingulate, sort of handles general awareness. So once again, the reason I keep, you know, sort of bringing this back to the limbic system of the brain and the worry circuit is because once we sort of understand that this is a physiological brain thing, just like anything else that is going on that's genetic, at least partially, it means that it isn't our fault. And of course, talking about the brain is just so much fun. I could honestly have conversations about the brain all day long and not have one bored minute. I also think there's a component to it that's kind of like an unsolved mystery. And then finally, when you finally figure that out, there's a just kind of a fulfilling sense of closure, kind of like just an aha moment. There it is. Just knowing what's going on can feel so good.
Also, uh, some of this information I just gave you came from one of my all-time favorite brain toys, and I do have a bunch. This is uh, coming from Daniel Siegel's Handy Brain Model. So if any of you are, my students, of course, have all seen this. It's, a, it's so much fun. If you're a future therapist or you're already a grown-up out there therapizing and doing good things for the world's healing, good for you. This uh, comes with a mitten with the brain parts mapped out on it. And when you make a fist, it puts all the parts, you know, where they go. And it is a very simple, easy way to explain to a client or a teenager or students or whomever what's going on with anxiety in the brain. It's just, it's a great visual and the simplicity of it just makes it um, so easy to kind of get what's going on with anxiety. And with this also comes a, a few more party tricks too. So we'll keep going here. So Daniel says that the obsessive compulsive thought pattern causes people to repeat a thought or ritual over and over to prevent, you know, bad things from happening. What he labels catastrophes, which obviously our perception is our reality with that. Something can be big and huge if we see it as big and huge. So four areas of the brain are involved with this. We have the OFC, which means the orbital frontal cortex. And then we have the OFC actually activates the ventral cingulate, which we just talked about. And this is involved in error detection. Doesn't that make a lot of sense? Okay, then we have the caudate once again, which normally disrupts faulty danger error signals. But with OCD, this gear is stuck. And the danger error message goes right on to the thalamus. So the thalamus is a key player here. And how I explain it to my students is I have them <clears throat> ask them to visualize a subway station in a, in a major city. For me, that's New York. That's my the Big Apple's my city. And picture, you know, just a busy weekday where trains are coming in and going out and coming in and going out. And imagine if there were a problem with that, right? So the thalamus is kind of the one, you know, switching trains back and forth to see who goes where and making sure it all happens smoothly, which means that the thalamus is sensory headquarters. So all information coming into our brain from sight and hearing, everything that's being said to us, everything that we're seeing and touching and tasting is all going through the thalamus. So just think of how important that is. Because our perception is our reality. And how those messages are transferred is pretty huge. And the one exception to this is the sense of smell, the olfactory smell. The, the sense of smell goes straight to the amygdala, which is why it can be so intense and have such intense, intense memories linked to it. So if you've ever felt like you smelled first grade, you probably did. Kind of cool, huh? So the thalamus may already be overstimulated in people with obsessive compulsive thought patterns who have very finely tuned nervous systems. And without the caudate to sort of turn the page, this means that faulty signals cycle over and over between the OFC, the cingulate, the caudate and the thalamus creating what we've been talking about, 
which is the worry circuit. So coming up, we've got several more party tricks to help with the obsessive compulsive thought pattern. And just a reminder that I use the phrase party tricks not to minimize anyone's wiring, whether it's anxiety or anything else, but to do the opposite, which is to normalize it. So here's the good news. There is a way to strengthen a malfunctioning caudate. And it goes right back to what we've been, you know, sort of saying all along, that it involves practice and effort. Remember how we talked about what we practice, anything we practice, we inevitably get good at, whether that's soccer, playing the violin, or robbing banks. Truth right there. So with effort and practice, repeated practice, one can uh, strengthen their caudate. And here's how. The first one is one I've used with my students so frequently, I, I don't even have words for it, because I typically each semester have just so many students coming to see me, you know, on the range of having, you know, just anxiety in some form and these unwanted you know, sort of circular what if thoughts and catastrophizing and all that. So the very first one is to to relabel. And I actually have them, we all kind of say it as a group. This is what we want to, to say the next time we're having, you know, a self-deprecating thought, a what if, you know, what if I don't get a job? What if I lose my job? you know, this whole thing going on, what we say, what we talk back, how we talk back to that is to say, it's not me, it's OCT or obsessive compulsive thinking. Daniel has his OCD, but we know how I feel about the word disorder. So let's say this again. This is not me, it's OCT or it's not me, it's OCT. And this helps us to separate our wonderful, amazing selves from a brain thing. It helps us to cease to identify it and to internalize it and to bring it into the living room, as I tell my own kids. It separates us from what's going on in the brain. This means to question anxiety caused by germs, disorganization, lock checking, your appearance, your work, the safety of other, others, your faithfulness, the fear of harming yourself or someone else, the lack of perfection or trouble throwing away something you might need in the future. Once again, I've had students, so many students share, not just, you know, uh, full stories like, like we did earlier, but just smaller things. You know, I have students, lots of students have talked to me about when they get anxious, they count or um, they have to have the radio station on an even number, or they say they will literally have to kind of reach up from the back seat if someone else is driving and turn it because they, they just explain it. They just can't stop themselves. It has to be on an even number or they feel like they, they can't go on or think about anything else. So this is where the commitment, the effort and the practice piece comes in. You must practice until you completely believe that rumination and rituals are caused by a faulty caudate. 
that it's a brain thing. Separating yourself, your amazing self, from this chemistry by saying, this is not me, it's OCT, or it's not me, it's OCT, and ceasing to identify with a physiological process. Okay, so the first first party trick was to relabel, it's not me, it's OCT, and the second one is to reduce, reduce anxious thoughts or rituals you know are the result of this obsessive compulsive thinking pattern by knowing exactly where the sensation is in your body. Just feel it. Is it tight? Does it feel like pressure, heaviness, etc.? And then go kind of back and forth between feeling what this, uh, this sort of somatic feeling in the body with breathing deep intentional breaths. Because remember, a deep, intentional, puffy lungs breath has a very neurological result of returning the mind into the body, which means it's bringing the mind out of the past or the future and returning it to the here and now, which is immediately calming. This brings us back to mindfulness, which I can't say enough about as far as learning to manage the monkey mind, these anxious and fearful thoughts that just intrude on us and derail our lives. Mindfulness is just key to kind of calming this down. Once again, though, you know, the concept of being mindful has obviously been around since the beginning of time. And it actually sort of, you know, started up in the United States as far as being a thing and being involved with uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and becoming a little more centralized and, you know, as a practical method, this all started out with the idea of addiction and reducing the anxiety and depression underlying the addiction. This also kind of uh, brings us back to what we talked about an earlier episode with John Kabat-Zinn, of course, talking about this welcoming, welcoming of anxiety, which just feels so counterintuitive, right? We just want to dig in when we're anxious and afraid, just dig in, you know, just wrap ourselves around it and reside there when, in fact, this is uh, sort of counterproductive to actually reducing anxious and fearful thoughts. And Jennifer Shannon, uh, we talked about her article, Don't Feed the Monkey Mind. She says something very similar. You know, when she has the, when she talks about her welcoming breath with each deep inhale and deep, deep exhale to actually welcome the anxiety. Because, again, counterintuitively, um, it actually by welcoming it, we talked about the unwanted guest too with John Kabat-Zinn, by welcoming this unwanted, intrusive, you know, sort of annoyance, it actually dissipates that much more quickly when we don't resist it. We also um, remember that that which we resist will persist. 
right? Or, or how it's said kind of out in the world is when people say, don't give any more energy to that, that's spot on. Because what we continue to put a big brick wall up against is going to build and build and build its energy. Instead, we need to yield to it and let it go. And Carol Jillian also says something similar because she says that the alternative is to work with the anxiety as it presents itself without necessarily seeking a cause or expecting an immediate solution, which is, of course, what, we're, what we want, right? But it doesn't work that way. She says, welcome it even as part of an open door policy, just like the others are saying. Carol continues to talk about a strategy that she has found helpful, which she calls touch and let go. And she says when a feeling such as fear presents itself, the touch part is that you acknowledge or welcome the fear. You don't push it away. You really take a look. Then having, having welcomed your anxiety or fear, you let it go. And she also says this is far from a one-shot solution. The fear may remain after you release it, or it may come up over and over again. But still, she says, let it be there. Make friends with it. Then, breathing out, let the fear go out into space. Okay, so we had the first one was to relabel. This is not me, it's OCT. The second one was to reduce, okay, anxious thoughts or rituals by being aware of the body and then uh, moving towards the welcoming breath. And the third one is refocus, which means to shift our attention to something we enjoy and makes our heart sing, whether that's exercise, crafts, or, you know, baking or whatever. Uh, though I, I can't say enough about the exercise piece, not only mentally, but Physiologically, it just it does wonders for anyone. It does wonders for anyone, period. But it does wonders with reducing anxiety and depression, especially with OCT, your obsessive compulsive thinking patterns. It is especially important to activate the nucleus accumbens, which sort of sits on the head of the caudate, and it's involved with releasing the one of the feel-good neurotransmitters, dopamine. And this is like putting oil on a stuck gear. Okay, so we have relabel, reduce, refocus. And then uh, one last party trick for, for today is something called putting the brakes on the cingulate if you remember, we talked about the cingulate being that kind of band wrapping around the limbic system. And uh, the front part of the cingulate, we want to, is, is um, actually activated by deliberate thought, which means thinking tasks that take effort, that's key here, immediately ease the activity of the amygdala, which remember the, the amygdala is a key player in flipping the switch on the threat circuit. Once again, the key here is effortful thought. So counting just one, two, three, four, five is not going to work probably very well. What will work is counting backwards from, let's say, 127 by four. 
And then just realize that the brain, since the brain likes patterns and it's sharp, it's going to catch on to that. So once it catches on, you have to change it up and maybe start, you know, at 158 and count backwards by nines and then give that a shot. It will work because it's pretty immediate. When there's conscious thought introduced, the singulate shifts to whatever that task is. Or, you know, say count, not count, uh, start, you know, rattling off the president, starting with George on up or with the current president and going backwards. So if you if you do Sudoku's every day, you know, good for you. But your brain's probably pretty used to that. So that's not really going to do the trick. It, me, it has to be something that really pulls the focus away from whatever anxious and fearful thoughts you have going on. Something that takes effort. In fact, this is um, partially how cognitive behavioral therapy works. CBT therapists um, use the singular break by asking questions to challenge negative thoughts and to sort of, you know, teach clients to learn to ask their own questions to challenge negative thoughts. Once again, this comes back to there are only two choices in life as far as this goes. Either we control our thoughts or our thoughts control us. Also remember that thoughts come first and feelings come second. So if we're allowing fearful thinking in this feedback loop, we are then going to feel fearful. And lastly, you know, no one ever said uh, this is easy. First of all, it takes a choice. We talked about being sick and tired, being sick and tired, and getting to a point where, you know, I don't want to live my life in this fear-based place anymore. Like, I'm done with that. I don't want to do it anymore. I want to be free from my intrusive, fearful thinking. After the choice, this then takes commitment, effort, and practice. It takes rehearsing. Remember also that no one said this is easy, for sure. Practicing thought control can be very challenging in the, in the beginning. But just remember, like anything else we practice, not only do we get good at it, but it also takes you know, less energy to maintain the same level of ability. It's just how it works. First of all, as mentioned, it takes the choice. That's really the first step right there. We talked about you know, becoming sick and tired of being sick and tired. You know, I just don't want to live in this fear-based brain anymore. I don't want to reside in this anymore. I want to be free from my anxious and fearful thoughts. And after the choice, of course, comes the commitment. You know, I'm committed to practicing controlling my thinking, just like I would commit to join joining karate or a running club or whatever else. It means that I'm in it to win it. And then, of course, comes, you know, lots of effort, lots of practice, because remember, the neurons, like toddlers, need to know what to do. They need, they need direction, and they need lots and lots of repetition and very consistent follow-through. Then we will watch the behavior. In this case, we're talking about thoughts. We will watch these unwanted thoughts dissipating with a shift towards more 
positive thinking. Remember also to practice the welcoming breath as much as possible. It's something I do every day. I'm in the car in the middle of a boring conversation, whatever, just a big, deep, purposeful breath. And one thing, you know, it's also cool about the purposeful, deliberate breathing thing is we can't do it wrong. You know, in today's day and age of this, you know, fast paced society, it feels like there's just so much out there that we can screw up and we can't screw up purposeful breathing, nor can we screw up being mindful. And like I tell my students, you know, with the trick where I, you know, pick a stop sign or a tree just to walk maybe 50 feet while being in the present moment. If you're able to do that much, give yourself a huge pat on the back because you did it. You know, and I, I tell them progress, not perfection. Because, well, perfection is self-abusive, obviously. We'll get to that in another episode. We want to... um Think about the fact that we were more mindful today than we were yesterday and give yourself some credit for that because you did it. Not only only this, but and this may sound crazy, but it takes courage to be happy. It's far easier to walk around whining and, and being miserable than it is to make the choice and commitment to be happy. And of course, it's been said that misery loves company. No, misery loves miserable company. For now, please be gentle with yourself and cut yourself some slack. Tell yourself, you know, how well you're doing, especially during this challenging and uncertain time. You are well on your way to becoming the boss of your brain and on the path towards living your very best life. This is Kimberly Quinn signing off from Northern Vermont. Have a mindful day. Mm